Okay, we're going to jump in. I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to start back into the Garden of Eden and bring it to um, this week's Parsha, actually, Veloscha. Um, but uh, but there's a there's an aspect to 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 our existence, to the human condition, that uh, that I really want to explore. Um, and you can see it right with the creation of uh, of man. You see, one of the one of the fundamental, uh, most necessary ways of of going through life properly, of understanding the world that we live in, is understanding what this world is all about and what this world is for. And there's such a there's such an ability to do a a, a disconnect right at the beginning of the process of understanding what the, what life is about, what the meaning of life is, what our role in this world is, that it's like from, from the opening bell, it's easy to completely misunderstand what's going on, and then that leads to all sorts of problems, all sorts of levels of dissatisfaction, all sorts of levels of frustration and confuse, confusion, and, and, and all the rest. But if one gets this initial point very squarely down in their head, then all of life changes. Um, and, uh, you know, let me introduce it in sort of like a more comedic way. If you imagine, imagine you attend a, uh, a baseball game and you think that really you're at a Japanese restaurant, right? And your first comment is, this service is terrible, <laughs> Your, your second comment is, this thing, you're holding a hot dog in your hand, is the worst sushi I've ever had in my life. Then it's like, you're looking at all the commotion on the baseball field, and you're like, what is this? I don't get any of it. And the answer is, is because your fundamental understanding that you're at a Japanese restaurant is incorrect. You're at a baseball game. So you will never understand and appreciate your situation because from the very opening premise, you have it off. Okay. 90% of us make the same mistake, as absurd as that sounds, and as absurd as that is, 90 plus percent, I'm making up the numbers, make that mistake in terms of our life in this world. And the, the whole consumer culture that we live in only helps us to misunderstand our lives and misunderstand the meaning of our lives all the more. So if a, per- a person has to really work to get the proper understanding because, because all of life around them is leading them further away from the point. It, it, what I'm saying is it's like you've got momentum in the opposite direction unless one labors to grasp this. And what is the point? The point is that our life in this world is actually a work session. It's a work session. There's lots of pleasure in this world. Tons of pleasure in this world. But that's not the fundamental point of this world. The fundamental point of this world is it's a work session. And... And until we grasp that, all we're going to do is complain about how lousy this party is. Right? 
That's, that's the bottom line. Now, where do you see this in the Torah itself? You see it very clearly in the Torah. Our, you see, the reason why I keep on going back to the Garden of Eden, why I think it's so important to study the Garden of Eden very carefully, is because this is, this is the way it was meant to be before everything went haywire and everything went wrong. So if you study the Garden of Eden, you get to see how the table was originally set and what we were supposed to do before the world got very, 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 very complicated. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, there was someone on the guest list, which was the snake. Let's not forget that he was part of the Garden of Eden. That was not a reaction to something that we did. Ah, uh, we complain to God, so God says, well, now you're going to have to deal with the snake. No, the snake was part of the original guest list. In other words, one shouldn't think, you see, the Garden of Eden has become synonymous in, in our minds with paradise. So we think, well, let me imagine what paradise is. Paradise is no work. Paradise is all pleasure. So no work and all pleasure, that's the way it was originally. Well, was it? Is that the case? Let's go back to the story and take a look at it. Because whatever that says is for sure true about our lives today. So let's go back. It says, this is, um, this is the beginning of man. This is once the human being has been created. This is like the very beginning. This is even before Chava, even before the first woman is created. Okay? It's getting right into it. Now, no tree of the field was yet on the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprouted. For Hashem had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the soil. Okay, those are seemingly pretty innocent psukim verses, but we're going to go much deeper into that. I'm going to tell you what's going on there and give a few maybe uh, new, new ways of looking at it. Let's first get the setting, because the setting is very, very, very important. When all of us think of the Garden of Eden, we think of a very lush, beautiful, verdant, green place. How can you not? It's the Garden of Eden, right? If you look in the Torah itself, that's not what the Garden of Eden looked like. Amazing, it's an amazing idea that very few people talk about for some reason. And yet it's clearly right there in the Rashi, if you look. It says, it says that in the beginning of the account of creation, it talks about how Hashem created greenery and trees and plants and all of these things. All good. That's what it says right in the Torah. But when you get to the Garden of Eden account, which is a little bit later, those green things hadn't been manifest yet. It says that all of the greenery was waiting just below the ground. It had been created. There are blessings that Hashem have for us in our lives that have been created that haven't been delivered yet. Keep that in mind. You know, someone told me something. I, someone gave me a blessing. They said, it's my birthday. I want to give you a blessing. I was so happy. And uh, this person said to me, do you know how many wonderful things Hashem has stored up for you that He hasn't given you yet? And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> It gave me such strength thinking that they've been prepared already. 
Well, you see that right here. All of the greenery had already been created. But it says it was waiting just below the ground. And it was waiting for Adam to pray for rain. And as soon as Adam was going to pray for rain, the rain comes down and all of this stuff shoots out of the ground. And all of a sudden, the Garden of Eden becomes the Garden of Eden. An amazing, that's an amazing thing. To think that the Garden of Eden was bare until Adam Arishon prayed. Now you can ask a very deep question. What does Adam Arishon know about rain? How does he know to even pray for rain? So obviously Hashem, on some level, puts a thought into his head to pray for rain. Which means sometimes our highest desires, already Hashem is praying that we should pray. And we hear Hashem's prayer, and then we, then we pray Hashem's prayer, and Hashem's prayer is answered through us. That was a lot of math right there, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's a longer teaching for another occasion. But let me just uh, cover, the, cover the most salient aspect of what I just said there. Sometimes Hashem desires to bring something in the world and He inspires us to pray for that thing. And then we pray for that thing and Hashem answers, so to speak, His own request through our prayer for that thing. So sometimes we become the answer or the vehicle through which Hashem can bless the world with something He desires to bless the world with. That's an awesome thing to be a human being in this world. Shows you, you can pray for good things, high and holy things, and maybe Hashem is going to answer His own prayer through you. That's, what a privilege, right? What a privilege. Now, you see something very, very interesting here. Let's, let's focus in on the second part of this. It says, Hashem had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the soil. Oh my goodness. The W word. Work! <laughs> We're talking about work here in the Garden of Eden. What happened to, like, you know, drinking coconut juice and reading the Sunday New York Times, right? Against the Tree of Life. That's what I thought the Garden of Eden was. No one had eaten from the Tree of Knowledge yet here. That hadn't happened yet. And we're talking about work. That's very significant, guys. This is very significant. This is the Garden of Eden when everything was still pure and good and right. And we're talking about work. Well, if that's true for the Garden of Eden, how much more so is that the case with us today? This world is a place where we have to do work. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. That's what it is. Now, let's go through these sukkim on a slightly deeper level. So it says, V'kom siach hasedeh, and all of the um, trees of the field were not yet on earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprouted. So I want to go deeper into the words themselves here. You know, the Torah itself compares a human being to the tree of a field. Um, so when it talks about a tree of the field, I'd like to say on a deeper level, that's hinting at the human being. So now remember, let's just reset the, 
reset what's going on over here. There, the first human being has just kind of shown up, and he hasn't done any work yet. So now, with that in mind, let's revisit these verses, these psukim, with that in mind. So it says, and no tree of the field had yet sprouted. So let's substitute the word human being for tree there, since the Torah itself compares a human being to a tree. So no human beings had yet formed yet. Why do you think no human beings had yet formed yet? Because we hadn't done any work yet. Do you understand? In other words, if our essence is to do work, and we hadn't done any work yet, right? Then we ourselves as human beings hadn't brought ourselves into being yet. We may have existed in flesh and blood, but not in essence yet. Because if our purpose is to do some work to complete creation, well, we hadn't done that yet. So it says, no trees of the field had yet sprouted yet. The human being is compared to a tree. We had not yet sprouted yet. We had not yet fulfilled our potential in this world yet. And it said, and no herb had yet sprouted. You know what? The word herb is asev. If you rearrange the letters of asev, it spells the word sava, which means satisfaction. So in other words, because human beings had not yet fulfilled their potential to do work yet, there was no satisfaction yet. Because satisfaction comes from fulfilling your purpose. When you work hard, when you do your job and you know you've done your job, you feel something deep inside of you. It's called satisfaction. On a deeper level, Hashem, who had created us, didn't receive any satisfaction yet. Because he had not seen that which he had created go to the next level of what it was meant for. And now, now it says, now Hashem had not sent rains upon the earth yet. So Hashem had not sent rains upon the earth yet. And there was no man to work the soil yet. So here you see something very interesting. The word for soil is Adama. Adama is a very interesting word. It's Adam. It's the word Adam, which means a person. Hey. Now we know that Hashem formed us from the ground. So it makes sense that the word for ground would also be the same word for human being, since we were formed from the earth of the ground. By the way, the Chachamim, the sages say, that's one of the reasons why people are so lazy, because we were formed from the ground. And the ground kind of just sits there, you know? So, so we kind of have that, that heaviness as part of our constitution. So the idea is that man had not yet worked to form this Adama. That we ourselves have to form the Adama. The Adam and the Hay. This mixture. Hay often stands for Hashem. For God. We ourselves had not labored in this mixture of Adam, hey, Adama, of forming ourselves, of elevating ourselves, of making ourselves the godly creations that we are. So, the main point to bring from this is the fact that at the very, very beginning, where everything was still pure and crystalline and, and, and perfect, the snake was still in the Garden of Eden, temptation still existed, 
even within the most perfect environment. That's number one point to remember. Number two point to remember, that, that work was required of us, even in the most spiritual environment. Now, I just want to take one more moment to elaborate that. You know, as we learned in a few, few weeks ago in, in our, one of the Garden of Eden talks, the simple way of understanding says that after we were exiled from the Garden of Eden, I just want to make this point again very, very clearly. We were not exiled for eating from the tree of knowledge. If you ask ten people, probably all ten will tell you it was because we ate from the tree of knowledge. But if you look at the account itself, after we ate from the tree of knowledge, we were not kicked out of the Garden of Eden, pure and simple. What happened? We hid. And then Hashem said to us, why are you hiding? Now, obviously... He knows the answer to the question. He's trying to engage us into a conversation so that we can do tshuva, so that we can return back to him. That's the only reason why he's asking to begin with. He says, why are you hiding? And then Adam says, it's her fault. And the snake says, it's the snake's fault. And then God says, okay, out you go. Out you go because, you know, and we went into the depths of this. If you want to look to the previous talk, we go m- much more into this. But one of the results is, is that Hashem does this incredible act of chesed. It says He gives us cutness um, or the garments of skin. Of, usually it's um, translated as leather garments. Um, but on a deeper level, the sages say, you know something? We were originally creatures of light, L-I-G-H-T, you know? And then after we ate from the tree, we got clothed with garments of skin. In other words, we became physical creatures, okay? And that was part of our fall. But you have to understand it the way the Sfas Emes teaches it, that basically this was a great chesed because Hashem said, look, when you were on this exalted, super high level, you were like a creature of light. You couldn't, you, you, you weren't able to follow the program. I told you don't do that, you did that. It's too high. Like I'm dealing with you in too high a level. So what Hashem did was, He brought it down. He brought the level of spirituality down, a big notch, like a quantum level down. And so now we were in a physical state dealing with the spiritual. That was not a punishment per se. That was better sort of like um, circuitry, if you will, so that we could um, receive the light in a way that we'd be able to deal with it better. So, so understand it as a chesed, the way the kindness, as the Sfasemis explains it. Nonetheless, I want to make the following point. Let's say after we ate from the tree of knowledge, that's when we got these garments of skin and we became more physical creatures. Now let's return back to what we were discussing originally and we can make the point about work all the more so. Meaning to say, when we were first created and the rain hadn't fallen and we were created to work, 
according to this way of understanding it, the way we're saying it now, we were creatures of light at that point. And we were still required to work. In other words, this is the best, best, best case scenario. We're creatures of light, and we were still required to work. But we were in this more physical environment. So that, that tells us something very significant, which means that what God desires of us is to bring his presence and recognition known into this sphere, into this dimension, into this dwelling place, to turn this world into a dwelling place for God. This is our fundamental job. Whether we do it, no matter what level we're on, that's what we have to do. Okay. The next thing that you see from this is that you see that that the psukim, the verses in the Torah, are out of order. Because we had already learned in the opening section about, um, about the creation of the world that trees and grass were already created. And yet, the sages tell us very clearly, in the Garden of Eden, they weren't manifest yet. They existed right below the ground. So, so you have to understand that. Well, wait a second. The verses aren't always to be understood in order. Okay. Now, with that as a transition point, I want to go more into this idea of the chronology of the Torah. Is the Torah written in order, or is it written out of order? And you'll see some very phenomenal insights based on this, about our own lives. So just stay tuned. We're going to talk about the Torah first, and then we're going to apply it to everyday existence. Okay? So, so is the Torah written in order, or is it written out of order? So, so there are two schools of thought. The most famous proponent that the Torah is written in order, meaning that the historical events appear in, in order. In other words, you'll first talk about the events of January, so to speak, to put it into modern terms, and then you'll talk about February, then you'll talk about March, you know, in normal order, right? Everyone understands. So the Ramban is the one who is the biggest proponent that the Torah is presented in order, and unless you've got a very, very good reason you can assume that it's presented in order. Okay. Rashi is probably the leader of the other side who says, no, the Torah is frequently out of order. Frequently out of order. And that's just the way Hashem wants it. In order to teach us certain lessons, he'll present some lessons first that didn't necessarily happen first, historically. So that we can understand the Torah better. Okay, fine. Two schools of thought. Where does... Rashi deliver his knockout punch, his proof that the Torah is absolutely not written sequentially in this week's Parsha in Baloscha. And there, we have something very interesting. We have an event that takes place on, in Nisan of this second year. Um, all of us know, in the counting of the months, Nisan is the first month of the year. Okay? So, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that in the beginning of the book of Bamidbar, just a few parshas before, the very beginning of the book talks about an event that took place on the second month of the year. 
The second month of the second year. So again, let me just put this in modern terms. So Parshas Bamidbar, so to speak, begins talking about something that happened in February 2009. And then a little while later, we learn about something that happened in January 2009. Okay, so clearly it's out of order. Yes? Can't argue with it. Clear psukim, right in the Torah. Out of order. Fine. And even the Ramban would say, okay, you're right. In this instance, it's out of order. But generally speaking, unless you've got like dates like this, we'll assume that it's in order. Okay. So now let's get a little bit deeper. If this is the capital of showing that the events in the Torah are out of order, wouldn't it be interesting to know what event that's talking about when it makes the point that things are out of order? I thought so. So this second event, which, which happens... Later, which is, which is told to us later, but actually happened earlier, right? The, the February of 2009, if you will, that really, that really, um, oh, I'm sorry, let me start again there. <laughs> the second event that's told to us, the January of 2009, but it's presented second after the February, right? What's that talking about? And the answer is, it's talking about Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni is all about second chances. Pesach Sheni is the story about where people could not bring the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering, because they had come into contact with either the bones of Joseph, where they were doing a a big mitzvah by carrying around his coffin to bury him in in, in Israel, or perhaps it was not of an Avihu, who they pulled out of the Mishkan, um, at the dedication ceremony, uh, the Holy Tabernacle, when they died there, um, bringing strange fire. Either way, they were not able to bring the Korban Pesach. And so they say to Moshe Rabbeinu, it's unfair. We want to serve Hashem with all of our hearts, and we're not able to, because we became ritually impure. And so Hashem says, so Moshe says, good point, let me ask Hashem. Hashem says, they've got a great point. Let them bring it one month later, and, and they'll get a second chance. Now today, even today, Pesach Sheni is one of the great, all-time great days of the Jewish calendar, because it's the capital of second chances. So, isn't it interesting that when Hashem brings to us this section about second chances, it's time-wise out of order? Because what is a second chance? A second chance means I messed up the first time, but I'm going to do it right the second time, and that's going to, in retrospect, fix the first time. A second chance means that I can go back in time and repair damage that I made earlier in my life. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. The power of tshuva. The power of reattaching ourselves to God. It's awesome. It's awesome. So now, I want to connect this to our lives. So it's presented out of order, just to solidify the point. That section about Pesach Sheni is presented out of order because it shows us how we can access the power of tshuva to reorder our own lives. And we can defy the conventional narrative, the conventional laying out of time, 
and return back to an earlier time. That's the point. Now let's see it in our own lives. If that's the way the Torah is, not necessarily in order, well, isn't it interesting that the Torah compares each of us individually to a Torah scroll? That means our life, our essence, is a Torah. Where do you see that? See that in two places I'd like to point out. One spot is where the Gomorrah says, people are foolish because they kiss a Torah scroll, but they don't kiss a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, who's a living Torah. So there's one very clear example where you see a person compared to a Torah scroll. Where's another example? There's a very famous, widely practiced segula, blessing, where an expecting father will open up the ark and take out the Torah scroll, and that's a blessing for an easy childbirth for, for his wife. And if you think about it just for a moment, you see that there's a very clear parallel. The idea the ark opens up, right? And a Torah scroll is taken out. So there you see a person is compared to the Torah scroll. Okay. So, so now, now let's apply this to our lives in a much, much deeper way. So if we're a Torah scroll, and you see that a Torah scroll isn't necessarily written in order, then that means maybe the events in our lives are maybe out of order. Now what does that mean? Now we're getting heavy, all right? Well, let's throw in another wild card here. The fact that we believe in reincarnation. A lot of people don't realize that Judaism holds by reincarnation. They think this is an Eastern idea, but not a, a classically Jewish idea. This is based on lack of education. It's very much a Jewish idea. So now imagine I'm going to a uh, I'm going to the office, okay? And I'm driving. Everything makes sense. Lots of continuity. I'm in one section of the Torah, if you will. And then I walk into the office, and what's going on? <laughs> There's always what this and that why? And I don't understand it. And it's out of the blue, and it doesn't connect to what just happened. How many of us walk into our house and all of a sudden, or the phone rings, or, or you get a letter, or there's an email, or all of a sudden something surprising out of the blue happens, not connecting necessarily with what just happened, and you go, how do I make sense of this? This is part of why life is so confusing. Well, I'd like to suggest, based on what we've been learning, and I don't know that you can necessarily attribute every question mark in your life to this. I don't know that I would rush to apply this to every situation. Nonetheless, let's just have the general idea here. Well, maybe it's dealing with something from a previous section. Maybe even a previous life. You know, one of the things I like to point it out, because I love the fact that it's right in the sort of the normal mainstream, orthodox uh, 
prayer book in the Art Scroll Sitter, the fact that the prayer before we go to bed, when beautiful prayer if you don't know it, um, it's the Shema Alhamita, the bedtime Shema, very much worth saying. It's a very short paragraph, but it's packed with, um, you forgive everyone. You forgive everyone. Everyone who annoyed you in any possible way. And it says right there clearly. Then, Gilgul Hazeh, or Bain Achar Gilgul, sorry. Meaning, whether in this transmigration of the soul, or another transmigration of the soul, says it clearly right there. You have an open reference to reincarnation, right? Right there. Normative, mainstream, orthodox. That's how we hold. That's just what we believe. So, so sometimes things are wacky because we aren't dealing with all of the information. The way I heard Reb Shlomo put it one time, imagine someone's looking through a keyhole and through the keyhole... They see someone is raising like a blade over someone and it looks like a murder is about to take place, right? But what are they looking in? It's an operating theater. Surgery. That man's not about to kill that other man. He's about to save his life. We see only a little bit of what's actually going on in the world. This is, in many ways... The, the, the tragedy of our existence. And in many ways, it's the greatest gift in the world. Because if you understand that you don't fully understand, you won't draw conclusions, and especially negative conclusions, all of the time. You'll understand that sometimes you might be working very, very, very hard, and it even feels like you're being driven or punished and actually something good is happening. I'll give you an example. It says that the Jews in Baloscha, that the Jews were on their way to Eretz Yisrael, and Hashem was blessing them. He was making a very long trip miraculously shrink. But in order for it to miraculously shrink, we had to walk and walk and march and march and march and march and march. And we experienced it like, like it's like a slave driver. What are you doing to me? And we complained. And the reality is, is that God was giving us this tremendous blessing by getting us to that place fast. You know, it's interesting. Certain Hasidim pray for hours and hours and hours and hours. That's the nature of their service. Other Hasidim, like Ger and Bells, for instance, bang, they say their prayers fast. And one of the reasons is you know, you shouldn't have any distracting thoughts. Just bang, get up there, drive through the prayers, obviously do them with kavana. You should have holy intention and know what you're saying and should be from the heart, but zoom through them. That, that, that's, that's, one, that's one approach. Another approach is stretch them out, live with them, enjoy them, celebrate them, you know, like spend a lot of time with them. Another approach. So Hashem, so to speak, is trying to, it seems like, drive through all the problems with the spies and the complaining and everything like that. Let's just get the Jews into Eretz Yisrael fast. Drive them in there fast. And the Jews complained. And we said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing to us? 
And interestingly, some of the commentators step up and defend us, even after the fact, and say, well, wait a second, what were we supposed to think? We were experiencing tremendous discomfort. What were we supposed to react? So now, listen to this, all right? Because this is all of life right now. We were supposed to know that God is good, and that whatever is happening to us, even if it's uncomfortable, God means goodbye. Period end. Period end. That that has to be our operating assumption with everything. And that we have to understand, like we made the point earlier in this talk, that we have to understand that there is no contradiction between hard work and God's love and God's goodness and God guiding us and God blessing us. We experience it, especially in this day and age, which is like, you know, you know, there's like this cult of comfort. You know, it's like, you know, it's like the, this tyranny of, of being pampered. You know? Weird. It's weird. It's weird. But the more we have every sort of need anticipated so that we don't experience the slightest bit of discomfort, oddly enough, oftentimes the more paralyzed we become from what it is we actually have to do. And we rush toward that pampering, and we rush toward that comfort, and we feel as though that's normal, and that's the way it's supposed to be, and it's totally rewiring our circuitry for the bad. That's why we have to remember that initial episode when everything was pure and good before we ate from the tree of knowledge, when we were even creatures of light, we were still created to work. In the best, best, best case scenario, it was still a work session. Okay. So now I want to go deeper back into this idea of time being out of order. Right? So sometimes you're dealing with, sometimes you're dealing with an event that isn't necessarily in order because it might be dressing another part of your life, an earlier episode in your own life, or perhaps a previous incarnation. But we also have to understand a great principle that says that the text always has to be make sense on the most simple level as well. See, Torah is very beautiful and very great. While it's true that you have deeper and deeper and deeper meanings, to the Torah, and it never ends. At the same time, though, we appreciate the phrasing that God gives us, and we have to understand it on a simple level as well. This is why anyone who becomes a student of Torah, you must learn Rashi. You must learn Rashi. You want to learn Zohar? Learn Zohar. But you must learn Rashi. You must. Otherwise, you're just kidding yourself. Because you have to understand the simple meaning of the Pesukim as well. You have to, because otherwise it's not Torah. You're learning something, but it's, it's, it's going to be a warped presentation of what the Torah is. So, so we understand that when we have these sages disagree with each other, if they're sages, we say, this is the word of God, and this is the word of God. They're both the word of God. Okay, good. 
So now let's apply that idea of life being in order and life being out of order. Okay? If, you have a, if you're driving to work and everything is good, and then all of a sudden someone is yelling at work, that is a work problem. <laughs> if you want to say, no, I was a soldier in Rome, and <laughs> that's what it is. Okay, that could also be what it is. But you know something? If your supplier hasn't gotten the delivery, it's also about that, believe me. The verse doesn't depart from its simple meaning. So both have to be treated with great respect. This is what Reb Shlomo refers to as having your feet on the ground while your heads are in the clouds. Right? You have to have both. Feet have to be firmly planted on the ground and the head should be in the clouds. They have to exist simultaneously. Okay. So now, I want to go into the phrasing of the Torah. When it talks about Pesach Sheni, and when it talks about things being out of order. And I noticed something that I got very excited about, something I think very interesting. You see, it's talking about, it's talking about the, um, the second month, and it's talking about the first month. And as we said, first it presents what was going on in the second month, then it presents what was going on in the first month. And um, it also says in both instances that this happened the same year, in the second year. So what does it mean, second, this idea that both events happened in the second year? What is that on a deeper level? When you encounter something a second time, in other words, you're not new to a situation. You encounter something a second time means you're living with a pre-existing situation. Okay? Now, if you look at the phrasing of the two times, in one instance, it uses the word Shana first, year first. In the other instance, it uses the word Chodesh first, month first. So, in one account, it says Chodesh Shana, and the other account, it says, Shana Chodesh. Why the switching around? Why the switching around? So I want to say the following. Shana and Chodesh are both connected to two different words, both dealing with change. Okay? Shana actually also means the word change. It doesn't just mean year. It means change. Now, on a simple level, you can understand that because every year brings about a new change. Okay? Rosh Hashanah means the headquarters of change, if you will. Not just the new year. So Shana means change. Chodesh, the word for month, is connected to another word, Chadash, which means to renew. So both mean changing. Shana means to do something different, to actually change your approach. Chadash means to make your interaction with that same thing new, to refresh your approach to that thing. Not to change your action necessarily, but to inject 
a new vigor and a new life into it. Let's apply this now. In the instance where it's talking about Pesach Sheni, it uses the word Shana first, which means to change. They did something, they did something off. They were spiritually impure. Now they have to become spiritually pure. There are some instances in one's life where one re-encounters the same situation and one must change their actions. That's how you fix it. By changing. You have to change. Okay? But there are other situations where everything's good, but it's not going to remain good unless you bring a freshness to that situation. So what's the first account talking about? We said the second account was talking about Pesach Sheni. What was that first account talking about where things are out of order? What was taking place the first day of the second month? That's Rosh Chodesh Iyar. And you hear something very interesting because the Torah doesn't go into it at length. But a very interesting event happened there on Rosh Chodesh Iyar of the second year to the Jewish people. The Mishkan had just been dedicated, the tabernacle in the desert, which was a microcosm of the whole universe. And the Medrash says that God rejoiced with the building of the Mishkan like God rejoiced when he created the world. And we know the Mishkan was also a miniature, a microcosm of a human being. There's a lot going on in terms of the Mishkan. It wasn't just a, like a shul. It was like really like this, this, like, this amazing portal, right? So, so God's holy presence, his Shekhinah came down and filled the Mishkan. This was on the first day of the month of Nisan. Now, we have an interesting rule in Halakha, which is that by mezuzahs, if you are dwelling in a, in a temporary place, like for instance, say a tent, a tent is a t- temporary dwelling, you would not put a mezuzah on your tent, even though you're sleeping there overnight, because it's temporary. However, if you are dwelling in a more fixed place, and you dwell there for 30 days, then it requires a mezuzah on the door, or on all the doors, except the bathrooms and the small closets. Okay? So, so 30 days means a degree of permanence. So what happened uh, 30 days after the Shekhinah came down and Rosh Chodesh Nisan, when the Mishkan was inaugurated? Well, 30 days later, the Shekhinah was still there. Which means that Hashem sent us this message that I am going to continue to dwell with you. That my, my Shekhinah is going to stay with you. That this is not a temporary occurrence. You are going to live with God. And that is going to be your existence in this world. That's awesome. Okay, so in that instance... In that instance, the word Chodesh is listed first. As in Chadash, as in to renew. So let me explain. Um, The name of this series of talks is called Living with God. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. So where did I get the Living with God part? So I've mentioned it. It comes from Rabbi Green, who says that the classic, stru- the classic structure of a romantic movie, right, is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, and then at the end of the movie, boy gets girl. 
That's your classic story structure. And then the movie ends. And Rabbi Green, I heard him say one time, when the boy gets the girl at the end, he says, that's when I want to start watching. (laughs) That's when the movie ends. I want to know, how do they live together? How do they make it work? So, we have to understand that we have God, and God has us. Now what? Now what? Now what happens that we have each other? How do we live with God? So, that is the opening of Sefer Bamidbar. Thirty days have passed. The Shekhinah is still there. Hashem has sent us this message that this is now going to be a permanent thing. We're hitched. This is, this is, this is it. Now what? And the answer is, Chodesh comes first in the telling of the date. Meaning, we, now that things are good, you have a situation where things aren't good. They require some sort of change. So, the word Shana comes first, meaning change. You have to change your activities. But what happens when you're dealing in a situation in your life, in your relationships, where things are actually good? How do do you deal with that? How do you deal with things going right? (laughs) And the answer is, you have to bring the spirit of newness to that relationship. So that's why Chodesh comes first. So, so, so Hashem should bless us that we should realize that that sometimes we have to change, sometimes that we just have to bring a new, a new vigor, a new excitement, and that we're capable of doing both. Hashem has blessed us with the ability to do both. And that as long as we're looking at the world with the right eyes, and we understand that there's no contradiction to God's goodness, that we have to actually work in this world, and that we're not surprised when we have to work, and that we're willing to work, but that we have to see God's goodness in everything, and that we have to be flexible people, and that we should be self-motivators. We should, we, we should assess the situation that we're in, and then do what's needed, and let it come from us. And then good things will flow in our relationships, in our communities, and in the entire world around us. Yeah. Thank you.